want to start off with a, an old Cherokee story. Maybe you've heard this story. An old man is talking to his grandson, old Cherokee. He said, a fight is going on inside of me, and it's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One wolf is evil, right? Anger and hate and envy and greed and arrogance and self-pitying resentment and lies, false pride, superiority and ego. This is, this is, this is the evil wolf. And, and biblically speaking, this is one kingdom. We're going to get to that in a little bit. The other wolf, the old man said, he's filled with joy and peace and love and hope and humility and kindness and empathy and generosity and truth and compassion and faith. And he told the boy, the same fight is going on inside of you that's going on inside of me and inside of every other person too. The grandson thought for a moment, which, right, he's, he's concerned now, <laughs> the old man's got his attention, which wolf is going to win, the, the evil one or, or the, the good one? And the old Cherokee replied simply, that the one that you feed. And again, maybe you've heard this old Cherokee tale. Um, I don't know if it's true or if somebody marketed it as an old Cherokee. I, I, I couldn't resource, I couldn't, I couldn't get back to the source of it, it's an old Cherokee tale. And whether, whether true or not, I, I believe, as a good Nazarene, we believe in God's prevenient grace, the grace that goes before. I, I believe if this is true, that this is God's grace going a continent away, the North American continent from the Holy Land uh, thousands of years ago, and letting somebody who, who could not have possibly known, a group of people who could possibly not have possibly known that on the, the eastern side of the Mediterranean, on the eastern side, of a, eastern side of a whole bunch of world empires, Greek empires and Roman empires, and there's this little backwater in the eastern edge of the Mediterranean 2,000 years ago, about 25 years after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, conceivably, I'm just saying conceivably, it could have been going on at the very same time that this old Cherokee tale was being origined or birthed or whatever, at that very, conceivably, at that very same moment, God was inspiring the Apostle Paul, like half a world away, to basically write the exact same thing. This is, this is in Galatians chapter 5. I'll start in verse 13. It says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't feed the bad wolf. Translation there, people struggling. Um, Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbors as yourself. Right? Don't feed the bad wolf. Don't feed into the operating mechanisms, the attributes, the characteristics of that kingdom or that wolf. But instead, love your neighbor as yourself. Feed the good wolf. Right? If, if you're really hanging on to that Cherokee tale. Feed the good wolf. Live in the good kingdom right? by the rules and the customs and the characteristics and the attributes of the good, good kingdom. And what are the desires of the flesh? So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what are the desires of the flesh? What are the attributes, the characteristics, and the, and the power mechanisms of the evil kingdom? Well, Paul continues right along with the old Cherokee. Well, there's sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Verse 21, I warn you, as I did before, that these, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? They will get there, and they will not like the kingdom of God. It will not operate by the ways that they like to operate, 
Therefore, they probably won't want to visit the kingdom of God, right? They're not, they're not going to inherit it. That's like the worst idea in their mind in the world, that they would inherit love, right, when they're all about hate. Like so many people before Paul, the biblical writers, he's, he's alluding to the fact that there are two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of the flesh. We, we call it a whole bunch of different names. And then we have God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Matthew was a good Jewish boy, so he would never say the kingdom of God. He always said the kingdom of heaven. The other writers would use the kingdom of God. Um, same thing. It's not two different places, in case you're wondering. Um, the kingdom of this world is represented by these previous verses, sexual immorality, impurity, all that kind of stuff. And the kingdom of heaven, right, that operates under a totally different set of rules and, and customs and, and power mechanisms and characteristics and attributes. Here, here's the way the kingdom of heaven operates, completely different. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance. Some of you have patience um, in your version. Uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But here's the catch. This doesn't just happen. This fruit just doesn't appear. Right? Walk out one day, it's like, oh, look, life is wonderful. You, you know it doesn't work that way. You know for a fact that it doesn't work that way. You, you, have, to, you have to tend your garden or else you're going to have weeds. You're going to have stuff, and you're not even going to notice it, right? It's going to kind of like not shaving. You only notice by the third day. The first two, only your wife noticed, right? But you didn't. The third day, you, you're a wreck, right? You're a wreck. You've got to tend your garden. This stuff doesn't just happen. This fruit, by way of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, results only when we are prepared to receive this fruit, right? If we're not prepared to receive it, the gift is kind of, to us, it's, it's a worthless gift because we never, literally, we never unopened it. We never accessed it. It's a gift that has to be received, and we understand that by God's prevenient grace, he's always offering it, always, all parts of the world, all peoples, all times, he's offering love, always. He's offering love to a people who reject him, who hate him, who work against him. He still offers love. He still says, I love you so much, I, I'll die for you. I will prove to you that you think you're unlovable, but you are. You're, you're worth my life. That's how much I love you. We have to receive that gift. About four or 500 years before Paul wrote of these two kingdoms, God instructed the prophet Isaiah to write to the exiled Jews in Babylon and those still living around the destroyed city of Jerusalem to relieve their troubled minds, right? To remind them, I still love you. I still love you. That the time of exile is over and I, and I, I still love you. We read this starting in verse 1 of chapter 40 of Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says God. Isaiah, go tell my people I love them. Their time of punishment is over, and I have given them more than enough punishment. That, that's that double thing. They have more than paid for their sin. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. She's been punished, right? This is when my, daughter, my, my wife says, okay, restrictions over, let them out of the room. <laughs> this three-week thing is silly. It, it, just let them out. <laughs> she has received more than her share of discipline, and now, and now, prepare to receive. We've talked about this before. Shekinah, be read, get, get ready to receive your king. Your king has been gone. 
right? The temple's been destroyed. You've been in, in Babylon. Um, but get ready because your king is returning. And in language and imagery, the people could understand. Isaiah describes what it looks like to prepare to receive a king in this ancient eastern world. Very different from our world, but you will see some similarities. Not exactly, but you'll see some, some, some principles, if not forms, of, of what's going to go on here. Um, Isaiah, again, describes what it looks like to prepare a king in the ancient eastern world. He says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So in the midst of the destruction, basically make way for the return of the king. The idea, again, is taken from the practice of eastern monarchs that when they would go into one of their conquered territories or visit one of their territories, they would send out heralds and couriers to announce the coming of the king. So get ready, right? Your town's looking a little disheveled. Pull the weeds, you know, paint the curbs. I, I was in um, with, with John Maxwell, my pastor and I from a previous church. Um, we were given the opportunity to go to Romania over the course of three years, go six times, um, and teach leadership principles to uh, former communists who never learned how to be entrepreneurs, how to be capitalists. So, yeah, we went and taught them how to be a capitalist. Uh, but, but within the Christian fold, so, <laughs> all right? Um, but, but it was amazing. We went there, uh, all the times that we went there, um, Bucharest is, is kind of a beat-up town. It's not a real wealthy country, Romania. And, it, and compared to some of the other cities in Europe, Bucharest is just a little beat-up around the edges. Well, one year NATO was in town, the week that John and I arrived. Wow. <laughs> there were flowers everywhere. All the ugliness was, like, covered I mean, they were prepared to receive dignitaries. The whole town was painted and, and like lipstick on the pig. It made it look better, but it, it was still... Anyway, I, I don't go there. That's just mean. That's just mean. So, this, this is kind of what's going on. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it. The whole scene is represented like as a march, right? Or a return of Yahweh at the head of his people to the land of Judea. In addition to the herald, see, in addition to the couriers, you know, announcing the coming of a king, get ready, they would send out whole teams of engineers. And what would they do, right? These were unconquered territories. They were undeveloped territories. How do you march an army triumphantly and not embarrassingly through a jacked up country. You send your team of engineers ahead and build a big old highway. You level the high places, you fill in the low places, you widen it out, you knock the boulders out so that the army and the king can walk in in grand majesty and not have to duck under the branches. Can you imagine they're holding the king and like he topples down the ravine because somebody trips on it? No, that would be horrible. So these, these teams of engineers, they would come in and make, make, a, make a big, wide pathway for the army to come triumphantly and without any, any obstruction that might embarrass the, the dignity of the whole circumstance and ceremony, right? So, so this, this is what's, what's going on here, right? Crop, find a place to cross the streams, you know, make bridges, construct causeways over the valleys. I mean, everything, get away through the forest, cut down the trees. I mean, the whole, I mean, just psh, the whole nine yard. General idea, again, is to remove all these obstacles so the procession could proceed with dignity and not embarrassment. From the mouth of the Lord, from the mouth of the Lord has, before the mouth of the Lord has spoken, a voice says, cry out, 
And I said, well, what should I, what should I yell? What should I cry? Verses 6 and 7, all the, this is strange. This is just strange. Listen closely to this. All the people are like grass, <laughs> and all of their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. Now, I know a little bit about grass and flowers of the field. I have a feeling this isn't ending well. The grass withers and the flowers fail because the breath of the Lord blows. I mean, literally, the psalmist is saying the Lord can go, and dead, done, right? Just done. Surely the people are grass. What? The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of God endures forever. Basically, it sounds a little depressing, but he's saying, look, just like the grass of the field and the flowers, even you all, right? We die. We fade away. But like Douglas said, not the promises of the Lord. The promises of the Lord endure forever. Right? So you, you could be long gone, and your great, 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 great grandkids can be experiencing the promises of the Lord because the word of the Lord endures forever. We, we pass away. Just, we're, we're, we're not of that stuff, right? Basically, get ready because a righteous king will one day rule the throne of David. I will fulfill my promises. I know it's been a long time. I know it's been a long time. But the word of the Lord endures forever. I will keep my promises. Verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up high on the mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Right, this is what the, the, the heralds and the couriers are announcing with, 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 with the king and the army coming behind them. Hey, here is your God, Jerusalem. And anyone claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ shouted out. In fact, at the end of our service, we're going to be sharing in communion. And if you haven't gotten one of these, they are a little bit difficult to open. So as I'm talking, I will not be insulted. If you walk back and, and have a wrestling match out in the hallway, just come on back in quietly. Um, but that's what we're going to be doing. And as I read from Corinthians, Paul makes a very clear statement at the end of it. Every, every time you do this, you proclaim, here is my God. That's what we're going to do at the close of this service. Verse 10, see the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. <laughs> He's bringing judgment, right? If you have been unfaithful, <laughs> Start preparing. And if you've been faithful, you're going to get a reward, right? The king's coming home. He's going to reward you for being faithful. He comes with justice. Keep reading verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Isaiah is saying, look, your king is coming, but don't be surprised by his appearance. You're expecting big old tall, mighty king like Saul, right? What a disaster he was. You're expecting him to arrive with swords and armies and weapons and violence and destruction and power, the earthly power, the kingdom of this world type of power. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that are young, don't be surprised by his appearance. And the way that his appearance, excuse me, the way his kingdom appears and arrives. Now, I want to fast forward. This is Isaiah, four or 500 years before Christ. 
The people are just coming out of exile. Now, let's fast forward to the book of Luke. Now, we're going to get to the Christmas story just, just a little bit. Maybe not the way you've heard it. <sighs> going to jump into Luke 1 and 2. Luke 2, you guys are familiar with that if, if you've never read your Bible, and, but you watch Charlie Brown Christmas. Right? Linus reads straight out of chapter 2 of Luke. It's just, it's beautiful every year. It's like a highlight of my year. Um, but I want to include an aspect of the Christmas story that I think gets overlooked sometimes. Um, so let's look at the entire story. I'm going to kind of fly through it. Um, chapter 1, there it is. Boom. <laughs> 80 verses, three things happen. John the Baptist, his birth is foretold. Elizabeth, Zachariah are told by an angel. Right? He doesn't believe it. He laughs or whatever he does. So he gets, ah, you're not going to get to talk until John's born. Um, and then we have the birth of Jesus foretold. Same thing. The angel Gabriel comes, tells him. Right? And then we have the birth of John the Baptist. So the kind of the Christmas story gets rolling. And then this is the part of Linus, right? Chapter 2, the birth of Jesus. Right? And then we don't normally continue in through chapter 2, like when he visits or when he gets circumcised. And then when he visits when he's 12 years old, we kind of stop right before those two and, and just the birth of Jesus. And, and here's the, the crazy thing about, about this, the Christmas story as related in just chapter 2, just chapter 2, because something is going on here, and I want, you to, I want you to see this. So in addition to the marital details that are provided by Matthew, you know, Joseph and being betrothed, all that kind of stuff, you're not going to get a lot of that in Luke. You get that story in, in Matthew, all the, the, the family intrigue. Um, but in Luke, you get all the human drama, Right? You, right, you have the lowly shepherd, you got no room in the inn, you got swaddling clothes, you got a manger, which is basically where, where animals, uh, domesticated animals feed. You, you put the hay and whatever else you've, well, I'm not a farmer. Steak, I don't know what they eat. There, there you go, uh, they wouldn't want steak. <laughs> That's my brother. Um, so we have all that detail in Matthew. Now we have all this human drama, drama in, in, in Luke. But Luke, he's, he has a purpose in doing this. He, he's going into really, really crazy detail for a reason. Not just so that we can have a pretty, like, in that, Lori, thank you, Doug and JP. And I, that, that wasn't the purpose, right? That, that, wasn't, that wasn't the, the big the, the deal. Um, Paul had a purpose from the beginning of the chapter 1. To the end of chapter 2, and I don't know if you notice this, but take a good look at yourselves. Um, the setting and the circumstances are a million miles away from any center of power. No political power, no physical power, no power of an army, no anything, no nothing, right? In a small backwater village in Galilee, in completely not extraordinary circumstances, Jesus grows up. Just a normal kid million miles away from the centers of any kind of power, anybody around would have thought, he's the king? <laughs> no, no, that, that's, that's not what a king looks like. That's not how a king is born into the world. Kings are born with silver spoons. They're born in the palace. They're born with privilege. That's the way kings enter the world, not, not, no. No, that's, that's just silly. That's ridiculous. Now, here's what you got to do. Understand that as you read your Bibles, the chapter markers, those were put in way later. Okay, so I, just, I want you to imagine reading this story without realizing you just read chapter 1, and then you kind of grabbed a cup of coffee, now we're going to read chapter 2, oh, the Christmas story. 
Tomorrow morning, oh, now we're going to read about John the Baptist like, there was, like, like these were separate stories. That wasn't Luke's intention. He really wants you to just read through. And so in your mind, I want you to think through chapters 1 and 2 of Luke and just kind of in your mind read through the commonness of it, the earthiness of it, right? The, just the everydayness of it. And then you roll into the first verses of chapter 3. And again, don't just ignore the chapter. Just like read, because Luke is inserting this for a reason. He's not putting it in there to date what happened. He's putting it in there for a much, much bigger reason. What he's saying in chapter 3, and I'm going to start it off right here. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Right after the finish of the Christmas story, we roll into in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrach of Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrach of Aturia and Traconitus, and Lysanias was tetrach of Abilene. Well, where did all that come from? Luke puts that there for a reason, right? He's just painted a picture of the kingdom of the world that the people of Judea, the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, this is the power that they recognize. This is the power structure. And in fact, as I continue in the next verse, we're going to throw in a couple high priests, right? This is the center of power. This is where everything should have happened. And the people knew about every one of these people. For us, they're just like Greek names, right? Blah, 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 blah. But but you got to understand just a little bit about these guys. So understand for just a moment, I'm going to give you just a mini history lesson here. Um, first of all, Luke is introducing us to the kingdom of the world. Okay, we made that point, right? This is the old creation that's been marred by sin. This represents the old creation that's been marred by sin and into which the kingdom of God, the new creation, is breaking into, right? Luke is saying, here's this beautiful, common world where everybody struggles and nobody has anything and we're all in the same boat together and, and a king is going to enter into this political system, but this king is a baby. He's got no power. He's got nothing, no silver spoon, no nothing. One king is entering into another kingdom, and he's going to displace this other kingdom. He's going to displace a king who's already there. This is King Herod. Um, little history lesson, uh, King Herod, Herod the Great, you hear about him. He, was, he started ruling 37 years before Christ. He dies about four years after the birth of Christ, maybe a couple years after the birth of Christ, right? This is the Herod of Jesus' birth. But then when you launch into chapter 3 of Luke, 30 years have gone by. Herod's no longer dead. He died a long time ago. When he died, he divided up his kingdom amongst three of his sons, right? Three of his sons, Philip, Herod, and a third one by the name of uh, Achilles. Let me see. It's Archelaus. Archelaus. That's trouble with these Greek words. Um, this son uh, was such a disaster that the Roman authorities removed him and stuck a governor, and Pontius Pilate was the fifth such governor. But Herod the Great, anyway, he dies and he leaves his kingdom divided up amongst his sons. They're, it's called tetrax or one-fourth and actually one-third, the way it works out. Um, and, and this is his kingdom that he's been left behind. Now, here's the thing that you got to understand about... King Herod and the Hasmonean dynasty. You guys, we all just recognize a Jewish holiday, Hanukkah, right? I'm, I'm going to include Hanukkah just a little bit in this mini, mini little history lesson. So we have Herod the Great, um, and he is not Jewish, right? And he desperately wants to be Jewish. And in fact, he came to the throne, and I'll get to that in a second, but he came to the throne because he was good friends with the Caesar, and he got Caesar to give him the title King of the Jews, 
right? Herod the Great's title was King of the Jews. And in fact, he took, he took it a step further, right? He took, and his son, Herod Antipas, took it a step further. Herod the Great decided, I got to buy into this Hasmonean dynasty, right? Let me tell you about the Hasmonean dynasty. A guy named Alexander the Great, you've heard of Alexander the Great. He died about 325. He came through uh, Macedonia and, and Greece, and he conquered the entire eastern half of the Mediterranean world all the way to India. Massive, massive conquering movement, and then he dies, right, prematurely, kind of a young guy, and he leaves territory to four generals. We only need to know two. One of them was a guy named Ptolemy, who kind of takes Egypt, and another guy, Seleucus, who takes the Holy Land and modern-day Syria. Um, Ptolemy was a pretty guy, nice guy. He let the Jews do whatever, and then he kind of backed away and let the Seleucids, descendants of Seleucus, kind of take over, rule there, and, and they were horrible people. They wanted the, the Jews to become Greeks. And so they would do things to the Jewish people, forcing them to be Greek. For example, if you tried to circumcise your son, I won't tell you what would happen, but horrible things would be done to you, the wife and the child, if you were caught circumcising your child. This man was so evil, one of the descendants of this original guy, guy by the name of Antiochus, Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, he comes in and he, he, he slaughters a pig on the altar, right? So if you're Jewish, you understand pigs, no, 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 no. And to have one slaughtered on the altar, I mean, it was just like crazy. So this revolt takes place, and you know who the family that steps up, right? The Maccabees, Judas Maccabee, and, and, and all his sons, and they fight, and a big old civil war happens in about 166 uh, before Christ, 166 years before Christ. Um, and, and, and let me see where I'm at. Um, he, he slaughters a pig, and there's a big revolt, and the Hasmoneans, they, they're generals, they're, they're warrior-type family, and the, the Maccabees become kings, and their Greek name kind of translated is Hasmonean. So we have the Hasmonean kingdom, which was the Maccabees from the Hanukkah story, right? Okay, you kind of caught up with me there. Um, so during the wars, we got a guy named Antipater, He's not in the Hasmonean families. He's just a general, but he's really, really good, right? He helps the Maccabee family win a bunch of the battles, and, and he, he gets a lot of power. And pretty soon, two of the Caesars are having a little bit of a battle, and he sides with the right one. And for doing so, he's given more power than the Hasmonean king. So we got this guy named Antipater who's even more power. He's a general. He's got no family, no claim to royalty or anything, but he's got more power now than the Hasmonean kings, the dynasty. So what does Herod the Great do? I'll marry into that family. I'll go marry a Hasmonean princess by the name of Miriam. You've heard of her. So they get married. Oh, how sweet and wonderful. Well, he dies, goes on. And his son, Herod, takes over, and he decides, well, I, I got to do the same thing. I got to marry me a Hasmonean, right, so the Jews will like me because I'm not pure-blooded Jew. So he goes and marries his brother's wife, who was the granddaughter of Miriam, right, Philip. You remember John the Baptist says, you know, you probably shouldn't be marrying your brother's wife. Herod gets mad, and who loses their head? Lesson, if you're going to make fun of the king, don't hang around the king any longer. Like, leave? Okay, long story short, there it was. Um, Herod and his family, they're, they want a dynasty. They want, they want to be the kings of the Jews. So they'll marry into the Jewish, they'll do anything they can. They're building a dynasty. 
And Luke is saying it's into this dynasty. And as we read these words in Luke uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and again, I'll continue in 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and, and Caiaphas, these, this is a father and a son. You don't normally have two high priests. The real high priest is Caiaphas, but his dad is the power behind the throne, so it's always listed two of them. During this time, during this and into this political story, and again, if you were a Jewish and you were reading this, Luke, for the first time, you'd go, oh, yeah. I know what every one of these guys, these are all horrible people. <laughs> these people represent pain. These people represent a barrier to God. These people are the evil wolf. <laughs> They're bad. I mean, and they all like, but, but we, 20, 20 centuries later, we look at it and go, oh, blah, 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 blah. But if you were originally here, you would be going, whoa, 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 whoa. So this little baby this little baby that John the Baptist, he's, he's going to say something in a minute, is going to break into this power structure. Crazy. Um, okay, so into this, this royal intrigue, this backstabbing, violent, selfish kingdom, humbly enters the word of God. Verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and, and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. You see the contrast that Luke has drawn Power, center of power, backwater, wilderness. Verse 3, he went into all the country around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism was normally for the Gentiles entering Judaism, right? If you were already a Jew, you didn't need to be baptized. There was some baptism about cleanliness, not necessarily about sin. So if you had touched a dead body, you needed to, you know, but it really wasn't about sin. This idea of being baptized for repentance, totally unheard of, kind of, kind of strange to their ears. Um, so to any, any observer, these were good Jews kind of gathered around John watching him. But on the inside, not so much. And, and this is what John the Baptist was driving at. And Luke is driving, dropping a huge clue right now, big, big fat clue as to how the kingdom of God is going to be different from the kingdoms of this world. Instead of a silver spoon or a sword at the head of an army, this king arrives as a son of man. One of us. But make no mistake about it. In Luke chapter 3, verse 4, John is reminding them, this is your king, right? And he wastes no time in reminding them that that little baby that grew up in Bethlehem, you know, 30 years ago, don't be confused because that, that baby's your king. That baby's your king, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. We read this in the book of Isaiah, but now John the Baptist is repeating it. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Again, using the same physical language of, of couriers and heralds and, and teams of army engineers that are sent ahead to prepare the way for the king. John the Baptist is saying prepare the way for a spiritual king. He, he's, an, he, he's, he's from the earth, but he, he's gonna, it's going to be a spiritual kingdom. He's not going to have a sword in his hand. He's, there's not going to be an army behind them. There's going to be an army of angels behind him, if anything, but, but no weapons, no guns, no knives, nothing like that. Again, John the Baptist announces the arrival of Jesus Christ only this time. In keeping with that internal spiritual nature of the kingdom of God, he's speaking of different kinds of valleys and mountains and hills and paths. He continues, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight and the rough ways smooth. 
Basically, every ravine will be filled up, all the anxious minds and, and discouraged hearts, right? Take comfort. Take courage, right? For the king is coming and will bring justice. Every mountain and hill shall be made low, right? Every self-righteous, proud spirit laid low. The torturous, crooked path shall be made straight and the rough places shall be made smooth. All those that have lost their way chasing after the kingdom of this world and all of the pain and suffering that you endured chasing after the kingdoms of this world. I'm going to make a path for you. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is going to make a, a way for you. And it's not going to be a difficult way. It's going to be very, very clear. You're going to have to do some work, but it's going to be a very clear, obvious, not hidden way. Very obvious right here. All the people will see God's salvation. No one is accepted from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. All people will see God's salvation, even the worst of the worst, if they only turn from their sin. Repent. Just like Douglas was saying, right? Then we belong to the redeemed Lord and become partakers in his salvation. This is from a a Lutheran commentary. There is no mind so good it must be changed. There is no mind so bad it can be changed. There is no sin so small it must be forgiven. There is no sin so great it can be forgiven. Folks, there are two kings represented, two kingdoms represented in this Christmas story. A humble and a proud. Two separate kings. During this Advent season, as we prepare to receive our king, right, we understand that the king, the biblical writers, first introduced as, as a little baby, swaddling clothes, crying, defenseless baby, powerless family, right in the midst of smelly, loud animals. They're quiet. No one's fallen over today, so that's really good. And maybe this scene, this, this stable scene, as you think about it, as you think of the sounds, the smell, the sights, you're thinking, yeah, that kind of sounds and looks like my life. It's, my life's kind of a big, stinky mess. Rest assured, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. If you would take up the elements. I'm going to continue reading from Isaiah chapter 40. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Fathers, we prepare to receive you. We recognize that you entered this world as a baby, as, as powerless. You could so that you could stand in unity with us. We, that we would understand that you understand where we are. 
Father, thank you for this time, this service. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your, your Holy Spirit. And thank you for Jesus. Every, every knee would bow to your glory, Father. In his name I pray. Amen.